How are we doing today, folks? Glad to have you in the house. My name is Bill Berg. I'm the lead pastor here, and so glad to have you in person. And if you're online, chiming in, welcome this morning. We're in this new series called Easter Avenue, sort of talking about Jesus' journey towards the cross. And before I jump into what I have for you today, I want to give you an opportunity that's coming up in April here later on, April 24th. It's a Sunday morning, but we have an opportunity for parents to dedicate their children, regardless of age, really. You can dedicate your children unto the Lord that day. We're having child dedication. We see in Scripture where in the Old Testament, Hannah dedicated her son Samuel unto the Lord and gave him over to God's purpose for his life. And we see in the New Testament that Mary and Joseph as well dedicated Jesus unto the Lord for whatever God wanted to do in his life as well. And so it's an opportunity for you as parents to dedicate your children unto the Lord and also yourselves in raising them to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's also a day for baptism, adult baptism here. We don't do child baptism, we do adult baptism. So if you've proclaimed Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, but you've never have taken the step to be baptized, to go public with your faith, God's word calls us to do that. Jesus did that in his own life as well, and God's word calls us to do that. In Acts, the book of Acts, it says, repent of your sins and be baptized, every one of you. And so we really encourage you to go public with your faith and to be baptized. It's an incredible spiritual marker for your life to look back on and, and that commitment to walk with Jesus Christ. And it's a blast as well. It's a lot of fun. So if you're curious about child dedication, talk to Amanda, uh, our Hope Kids director in that. If you're curious about adult baptism, talk to Pastor John over here after service, but we'd love for you to go public in those two areas, and we have that opportunity coming up on the 24th. Well, obviously, uh, everybody, or most everybody that's been paying attention to any kind of news knows that it's March Madness, and it's been March Madness, even though it's April, right? But it's coming to an end, and during March Madness, there's 68 college teams that are trying to get to the big game, which is Monday night, the national championship. And a lot of people around America like to do what's called the bracket, where you get the 68 teams and you predict who is going to win against who, and you're trying to get the most predictions, and a lot of times people are betting on it, but most predictions, and see if you can beat others out with your bracket. And so 68 teams getting down to that one team. And there's all kinds of predictions on who's going to get to this Monday night to the national championship, right? And it's so interesting that the farthest anybody has gotten as far as predicting correctly the 68 teams is to the 49th game, which is the Sweet 16. An Ohio man back in 2019 got the farthest ever in the bracket predictions all the way to the Sweet 16. Nobody in the history 
of March Madness has ever gotten a perfect bracket to where they predicted every team that was going to win all the way down to the national championship. Matter of fact, North Carolina Tar Heels, who's playing Monday night, were not in the predictions to be playing Monday night at all. Even just a couple weeks back, the top 10 list of who would be playing isn't there. Throughout the season and in the March Madness bracket, Gonzaga from Spokane, Washington, they were the ones that were predicted all along by the ESPN respondents and by the fans to be in the final game Monday night. But they were knocked out during the Sweet 16 against Arkansas. And so this whole idea of prediction is a big deal and is a difficult deal as well. I mean, if all your predictions came true, you'd be doing pretty good, right? I mean, you'd be probably uh, working the stock market for sure, right? But it's interesting when it comes to predictions and that, and it comes to the life of Jesus, especially when we look at this whole idea of this Easter journey that Jesus is on. Jesus himself makes this bold prediction to his disciples. We read it in Matthew 16, 21. He says this, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so he makes this prediction to his disciples. Not only that, we read as well in Matthew chapter 17 and Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus again makes this prediction that he has to go to Jerusalem and be killed by the chief priests, be mocked, be tormented. And he makes these predictions. Now, in this prediction, Jesus doesn't merely say that, hey, I am going to rise from the dead. He doesn't merely just say that. Within this prediction, there are all kinds of specific predictions that he is making. His death would occur in Jerusalem. The scribes, the chief priests, and the elders would be part of his death. He would suffer many things, he said, at their hands. We know that he was whipped. We know that he was spit on. We know that he was beat up. We know that the thorns were thrust on his head. So many other things beyond just the crucifixion. He would not merely die, he said, but that he would be killed. That's a big difference between like dying and, hey, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be like murdered, right? And then he predicts that he would raise from the dead, but his prediction carries with it a time. Hey, I'm going to raise from the dead in three days, guys, three days. And so Jesus makes these bold predictions. Just like Gonzaga, I mean, they were making bold predictions all throughout the season, and especially when it got into March Madness, because everybody 
from the fans, including all the professionals, ESPN respondents were saying, hey, you are going to be there, right? But yet they couldn't even carry through those predictions. But here we have Jesus making these bold predictions to his guys, his disciples. And what's so interesting is, is that if we wind back the clock to the Old Testament, the old part of the Bible, hundreds of years earlier, we see these binding pictures of Jesus' predictions right now. We see these predictions, these prophecies, 300 plus about Jesus. So now when Jesus makes these predictions, it's pretty much his disciples looking at him now and saying, okay, put your money where your mouth is. I mean, when you make a prediction, don't people like hold you to it and just say, all right, put your money where your mouth is. Let's, let's see if your walk matches your talk, right? And that's a big deal. So think about this. Anyone can make predictions. Having those predictions fulfilled, though, is vastly different, right? We see it in March Madness all the time. In fact, the more statements that you make about the future and the more you get detailed about it, the less likely that it might be fulfilled. So even Jesus going back to saying what he said to his disciples, it wasn't just, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He had all these specific factors in there when he spoke of that. It reminded me of when I was at the men's retreat just probably you know, a month ago here, and I was, we were playing basketball and that, and after basketball sort of winding down, I was playing uh, a game of horse with Jim Van Heisen. And uh, we were just playing a game of horse and that, and sometimes in the game of horse, you know, obviously you make it. If they don't make it, then they get an H. If they don't make it, they get an O, that kind of thing. But sometimes playing horse, you have this prediction where like, all right, I'm going to get all net. You know, I'm going to shoot all net, right? Or you have this prediction of, hey, I'm calling backboard. Like, I'm actually going to hit the ball off the backboard and it's going to go in, meaning then that person just doesn't have to make it. They have to hit the backboard and they have to get it in, right? Or if you call, hey, all net, right? They have to get all net, right? And that, so it's just not only this, this making it, but now you've up the game and you've given this specific prediction that, hey, I'm calling backboard, right? And it's different. It's just sort of in the Old Testament, there were all these specific predictions or prophecies about what Jesus would do. So it like ups the game like crazy. So listen to this. For example, what's the likelihood of a person predicting today the exact city in which the birth of a future leader would take place well into the 22nd century? This is indeed what the prophet Micah did 700 years before Jesus. Further, what's the likelihood of predicting the precise manner of death that a new unknown religious leader, Jesus, would experience a thousand years from now, a manner of death 
that did not exist at the time. When this was prophesied or predicted about Jesus that he would die by crucifixion, it wasn't even invented yet. Think about that. Crazy. Yet this is what David predicted 1,000 B.C. Again, what's the likelihood of predicting the specific date of the appearance of some great future leader hundreds of years in advance? But yet this is what Daniel does 530 years before Jesus shows up. If one was to conceive 50 specific predictions about a person in the future whom one would never meet, just what's the likelihood that that person will fulfill those 50 specific predictions or prophecies? If you'd even take it down to 25 specific predictions of that individual that other people would do to them, meaning they have zero control over what is done to them, what is the likelihood that those 25 specific predictions would take place? It's crazy. If we just look at sort of the the top 10 predictions about Jesus, and in your brochure I have those, the time of his birth, when he would be born. I mean, how many of you in the room decided that? Did you choose the date of your birth? No, none of us, right? How about the place of our birth? I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. Didn't choose it, right? Had, you know, no clue that was coming, right? Even who you are born to, born to a virgin, right? I didn't choose my parents. Jesus' betrayal, could he plan that, predict that, being mocked the way he was in the inner court with the religious leaders? This whole idea of being crucified, nailed to a cross, the specifics of that, and then being pierced in his side. Typical in those days, during a crucifixion, before they would bring the individuals down, they would break their legs. So if they happened to be still living at all, they weren't going anywhere, right? And so seeing that Jesus was dead, instead, they pierced his side. First time ever done. But yet it was predicted hundreds of years earlier this would take place. His clothing, that his clothing would be gambled for by the soldiers was predicted hundreds of years earlier. And that is death, that he would die between two criminals. But yet when he was buried, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That prediction hundreds of years earlier coming to fruition. And then obviously the big one, that he would rise on the third day. I mean, he had zero control over that, right? I mean, when we're dead, we're dead. He had zero control over that. But yet, there were all these binding pictures of these predictions of Jesus' bold prediction that, hey, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem. And so we see this preparation of what's taking place And what has been determined 
and what is going to come to fruition. That was written hundreds of years earlier. But even from there, even from what was communicated in the Old Testament, the old part of the Bible, we can roll it back even further all the way before creation, taking it all the way back into, that's why I'm sitting in the chair, the boardroom, all the way back to the boardroom, where in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are making plans. And in their creation of the heavens and the earth, and they're creating all things, and they create the the stars and the skies and the, the waters and the land, and they put boundaries on it, and they put fish in the ocean, and they put birds in the air, and they put livestock on the land. And then they get to the image of you and I, the image of man and the creation of man, and they say, hey, let's do something different. And there's this pause in the boardroom. Let's, let's do this last creation different. Let's, let's make them in our image, man and woman. And as they make man and woman and put the characteristics of God in them, they recognize that they have to put in them this idea of free will, this idea of, hey, if we want them to truly be in a love relationship with us, they need to choose it. They need to choose to be in a love relationship with us. Because true love is a choice, right? I mean, anybody who's married in here didn't force their spouse to marry them. If that was the case, it wouldn't be true love. They have to decide to love you. That is love. But in giving that choice, in that creation, which was necessary, in that boardroom, they recognize the challenge of it, that what happens if they choose not to love, if they choose to reject us and walk. And so the plan A was that man and woman would be in this love relationship with their creator, and they would live within the boundaries that was created for them so that they can enjoy life to the full. But yet they had to have this plan B of what would happen if they decided to step outside of those boundaries. And so it got quiet in that boardroom and there was thinking and ideas and the father said, listen, I think this is how it has to be. I mean, I will be here, and I will oversee all of creation. I'll see all over all the universe, the purpose of creation. But son, Jesus, if that takes place, you're going to have to go down as a man. You're going to have to take on flesh. And at some point, you're going to have to go public and speak to the people that we want them back into a love relationship with us. But some of them are going to reject you and hate you, spit on you, slap you, embarrass you. And at some point, they're going to put nails through your body. That's going to be your role. It's going to be your position. 
and Holy Spirit. After he raises on the third day, after he meets with the people, he's going to ascend and be back here with me. But then you're subbing in, Holy Spirit. You're subbing in and you are going to be with the people forever until Jesus returns back into the game, into his position. I think that's how it's going to have to be. That's what's going to take place. And so they're having this conversation in the boardroom. And this is the same conversation in every NCAA boys basketball boardroom that took place all the way back to August. What's going to happen? Plan A, plan B. What positions are people going to play? Who's going to sub in? And so when we look at the big picture of Easter and what's coming, we look all the way back before the creation of the world and the boardroom of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what 1 Peter 1, 18 and 20 says. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed or bought back from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of, of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Did you get that picture? Man, this was the plan, right? Titus 1, 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. You see, all the way back in that boardroom, there was a plan that we, as a people who rejected God, would be bought back. We would be redeemed. Our sin would be paid for by Jesus the Son. And so as we walk towards Easter, I want you to recognize the incredible intimacy of God's relationship with us, the incredible love that God has established for you. And that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for your sin, for whatever has gone down in your life. He wants to raise you up. And he wants you to be established in a relationship with him. That's why Jesus, to his boys, made the bold prediction of, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be put to death on the cross. That's why he came, so that he could fulfill all the binding pictures, the Old Testament prophecies about him. 
but he knew as well that back, way back, before even we were born, that it was decided in the boardroom that he would play that role. And so in this, recognize God's incredible love for you and how he desires strongly that you walk in relationship with him because it was established and desired from the beginning of time. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is clear and that you love us so much that you sent your son to come and to die on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. And so I pray that you would prepare our hearts this month as we head towards Easter and that we would rejoice in our salvation and rejoice in our relationship with you. And so I pray that each one in here would just be established and soaked in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.